The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today, Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world, and Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hey everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corey Perkin. This is episode 282 and I'm here with my friend who is looking a little like she's in finals mode. Not very well, Caro, very tired, a bit stressed. <laughs> oh, it must be September. Caroline Wilson, hello. It's been a big campaign already, Corrie, but I'm forcing spring today. Miss Jane's put out some lovely flowers, including, I think we've got some geranium, some wattle. Um, it's Long very, grass, very beautiful pretty. beautiful type of grass there. That's You're taking gorgeous. off your woolen cardigan as we speak. Just, well, I just saw you in your pretty frock with the flowers on it, and I thought, here I am in black still, never mind. Uh, was, it was, it's going to be 22 today. Let's time code this conversation. No, it's a very dry week, and we're, I'm, actually, I'm actually going to talk a bit about the weather later on um, in Six Quick Questions. But we have a full show. Miles of Prince Wine Stories coming in to talk about white wine tasting I have a terrific book, an oldie but a goodie, and Caro and I are going to discuss the latest ABC drama that came to our screens on Sunday night with great enjoyment, the second series of The Newsreader. Caro, you have a great recipe, and we've got lots of footy talk and so on, but first of all, I'm going to kick it off with uh, a few brickbats to myself, and <laughs> we received in the mailbag from, once again, not Rishi Sunak. Do you remember Rishi, not Rishi Sunak? Well, uh, yes. I think it it was not Rishi Sumac, in fact, (laughs) because he really is (laughs) Rishi Sunak. So this is is from our correspondent, not Rishi Sumac, not Ricky Sunak and not Lynn Truss either, which I thought was rather fun, um, given that I was um, referring to um, the former Prime Minister as Lynn. Um, Miss Perkin. Greetings again to you and your podcast colleagues from these hallowed corridors of British power. Doubtless you will recall that I wrote to you a number of times last year regarding your repeated gaffes of me, notably the incorrect recollection of my name during repeated podcasts. After your Rishi Sumac (laughs) and Ricky Sunak, my staff informed me that you performed a humble mea culpa, for which I am grateful. Thanks for that, Rishi. Near a year has since passed, I have settled into office happily with the merciful effect that my names have become common currency among observers such as yourself. I no longer suffer the same indignities at your Australian hand or tongue as the case may be. However, I am have been compelled to write again on the occasion at an even more egregious insult in your recent podcast, your brutal assault on my venerable, venerated, sorry, political hero, Dame Margaret Thatcher. Oh God, here we go. I know um, where this is going, and I actually at the time thought, mm, yeah, anyway. you did look at me, but I'm going to stand by the first. So Rishi, not Rishi, not not what's his, what's the real name of this person again? Not Ricky Sumac. Um, the, the anyway, the correspondent uh, has picked me up on three points. Two, yes, mere culpa. The first one I'm going to argue here. So 
uh, our correspondent says, but your confident assertion that the Sex Pistols anarchy in the UK was kind of the beginning of the end of Margaret Thatcher, which is my quote, is frankly nonsense. Anarchy in the UK was released on November 1976. Correct. Our sainted Mrs. Thatcher was not Prime Minister then. In fact, she was barely a year into the term as leader of Her Majesty's Most Loyal Opposition. In fact, the Sex Pistols ditty could better be described as the beginning of the end for Labor's then PM James Callaghan if you're drawing long bows. Mrs Thatcher became PM in May 1979, almost four years after Anarchy in the UK was first aired. So I just want to say in defence of this, I in my um, early 20s memory of this, they, um, with one of the election campaigns, and I think it might have been after the Falklands one, I can't remember what that was, 84, 85, after, that, after the war, maybe, can't remember. No doubt I'll be reminded of this, that there was anarchy, Anarchy was played in the dying days of the Thatcher government in the late seven, in the late eighties. Well, he ruled until nineteen ninety. Yeah, so in the late eighties, that yeah, soundtrack. I remember. I it. think they've used it for some sort of campaign or something that I have I have felt in my memory that's been drawn into the Margaret Thatcher. I think it was minus more strike. people like Paul Weller and Elvis Costello. Um, to be honest. You know, I, I really um, yes. Well, you are, you, I mean, you ship, did look at ship me. Shipbuilding by Elvis Costello was a, a very big protest. You know, diving for dear life when we should be diving for pearls. That was an anti Falkland song. Yeah. The, well, the I'll, I'll, ta- was, I'll take that. I, I, we I should will take reference that. this conversation. The conversation was about can a song change a political campaign? Correct. And I think I'd have to say that not Rishi Sunak is correct in this case, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying. All right. Well, I'll give you that one. Rishi, thank you for pointing that out. My staff also informed me that you've been struggling with the pronunciation of the family name of the embattled Spanish football identity, Louis Robillier. Um, and then um, there's there's a whole lot of references to that. But I do think that I did pronounce it correctly. And uh, he has also pointed out that um, the estate of the late Australian variety performer, Jimmy Hannon, would not be very pleased with me referring to Jimmy Hanlon. And, of course, I am completely guilty for that one. I should have picked you up, Corrie. I should have picked you up on that one. The second point is my pronunciation of the embattled Spanish football identity, Louis Rabier, but I think I have pronounced that correctly. But I do agree with you, correspondent, when you said that the estate of the late Australian variety performer, Jimmy Hannon, would not be very happy with me referring to him last week as Jimmy Hanlon, which, of course, I did because, Caro, as a child of the 60s, who was the other famous Hanlon? Tommy Hanlon. I know. You got and your I Hanlon got, and your Hannons ha- mixed up. I know. That's the one I should have picked you up on. Uh, yes, because I think, actually, you might have said Jimmy Hannon, and when you said it, I thought, oh, God, one of us is wrong, and then, of course, yes, it's me. So, again, apologies. And now the third one, this is a big error on my part, but I have an explanation. I'm not trying to weasel out of it. I was wrong, but I just want to explain. Uh, Not Rishi Sunak goes on to say, my high commissioner in Canberra informs me that it was not Little Patty leading the singing in the 1972 It's Time Labor campaign ad, as you asserted. The then Ms. Amphlett was in the backing chorus of that performance with other Australian popular culture luminaries of the day. And the singing was led by Alison McCallum. You are absolutely 100% right. And the reason, I mean, you and I were 11 at the time of this campaign, Caro, but the little Paddy confused me because when I re- did the research for this last week, I called up a YouTube and they are interviewing Paddy Amphlett about, Patricia Amphlett, about that recording session 
Well, she was definitely there. She, she just was wasn't. There, but I, but did I've you just say she was leading it? Did you? I said that she was the lead singer, she, and of course, a, Alison a lot of apologies <laughs> to start the show, Corrie. <laughs> And we don't really well, care anyway, about Well, anyway, thanks for that, not Rishi Sunak or not Ricky Sunak, and we're, I'm sure we'll hear from you again. Just to close off on that, Cory, we don't really need to worry about that Spanish bloke because he's finally gone. I he, did hear he, that. He chose to go to England and do an interview with Piers Morgan and announced mid-interview that he was stepping down. Um, very quickly, um, I just want to thank Stephen Lloyd via email who loves the podcast, especially BSF. He's got the afternoon to himself. He started on Bay of Fires, two episodes in. I've got a dystopian sea change vibe. That is a very, very good description. And Corrie, we've promoted a special podcast next week, which is going to be at Crown at 9am in the Metropole Precinct. The 19th of September. Next to Forever New. 9am, and we've talked about the fact that our special guest is Deborah Conway and Sal Jane Merritt, Juliana Claridge and Tina Worrell have all got in touch to say either they love her music and actually had one of those at-home events that she used to sell one of her albums, um, either or they can't wait to read the book. Um, Tina Worrell says her very first present her now husband bought for her was the CD String of Pearls, still in her top ten. So we're really looking forward to seeing you there. And, of course, the other date you need to put in your diaries is Thursday the 16th of November. We have a live podcast at Red Energy in Richmond. Tickets are on sale soon and we'll give you times soon as well. Caro, a big week. We say that every week, but this has been, I feel like it's been a particularly bigger week because you and I have been on the road nonstop. And in fact, I didn't go home for seven nights, I think was the count. So unexpectedly, I've been doing Western Victoria, Central Victoria, you've been to Sydney, you've had the footy finals, I've had hay fever, there's spring fever in the air, lots going on. So tell us first about your Sydney trip and why you, in the studio last week, you were here, you'd just come back from Sydney, and then you told me you were catching a cab after our lovely lunch at the NGV and you are off to Sydney again. I was going back again. Yeah, the NGV lunch where we listened to some wonderful speakers, including Annie Smithers, who was just so impressive, and uh, Brigitte Hefner was also, and that fas- the fascinating woman who runs La Lune. Lune, Lune Croissant Bakery, yes. Oh, it was just, it was just so, so interesting to listen to a conversation about food and art and eat a beautiful lunch. I was back to Sydney because I was asked to go up and represent Nine Media for the Upfronts, which is a massive sort of promotional day where all the various um, people from the publishing arm, the radio arm and the broadcasting arm, you know, so TV, radio, and talk about what is coming up and online for Nine Media for next year. And you're talking to um, potential advertisers, current advertisers, all the big um, corporate companies, et cetera. But there weren't many people from Melbourne. So it was really me and Eddie Maguire, I think, were the only two presenters from Melbourne. So I was on with Ben Fordham, who's a big, big radio star up in Sydney. And um, he was a lovely bloke. And um, we were on just, we were with Carl Stefanovic and Sarah Arbo, who, you know, were lovely to. Oh, my goodness. I've met Carl before, but Sarah. Feels like a Logie's table. Yeah, I um, had a lovely chat to Liz Hayes about her new book. And we're thinking of talking to Liz on the show and Tara Brown also from um, 60 Minutes. Oh, look, who I did, Peter Costello, the chairman. I mean, I was just, it was a big day, but I'll talk about a couple of funny things that happened when we get to quick questions, Corrie. And then, of course, back um, Thursday, oh, 
Thank you for the invitation to the 42. I'm sorry I couldn't make it. I mean, I know airlines have been in the news a bit lately, but this was one of the more, because Brendan was off to Perth because his brother, who for many years played in a band called The Frames in Perth, there was a big reunion concert on the weekend. So Brendan and all his siblings went over from Melbourne, Victoria, to go and see Mark perform, and it was unbelievable. That's another How story. fantastic. So I had to be – so he left early Thursday morning. I was flying home Thursday late morning, and we had – you know, poor old Queenie was left at home, home alone, but I was due in at about one. Got on the plane, Corrie, Qantas flight, not blaming Richard um, Goida for this or Alan Joyce – this I've never heard this before. We're sitting on the tarmac, sitting on the tarmac. Luckily, I'm reading the the book by Anne Patchett that you... Oh, Tom Lake. I'm reading Tom Lake, which I've now finished. So thank you. Great. Oh, in fact, I meant to bring it in to give back to you. Sorry, next week. The pilot announces, I'm very sorry. I know we've been sitting on the tarmac for half an hour. Unfortunately, my seatbelt won't click. And we have to... Have you ever heard of such a thing? I'm thinking, well, surely it's pretty safe in the cockpit. You don't need a seatbelt to click. We have to not only find the mechanism that fixes it, but we need to find a whole new seatbelt. Oh, Lord. One hour. Oh, Lord. Waiting for the pilot to get a new seatbelt. Oh, God. Queenie's claws must have been drumming away. Anyway. Where are they? It was a huge weekend. Oh, what a pain. You know, I was going to say earlier, we we should have actually had a talk about the worst week for the Albanese government last week. What a... What a really bad misstep that was going with Qantas rather than promoting competition in the marketplace. Anyway, yes. just no, saying, that, very that, bad week for the government. That makes me very angry. And, you know, I've, I've been bagging Qantas for a long time. And, you know, we've watched it go from one of our most trusted brand names to one of its most, one of the most reviled. Interesting it shares the same chairman, uh, chairperson as the AFL, Caro, which you're also not a huge fan of. Very remote chairman. That's another story. Anyway, yeah, the finals first week was huge. Two ninety-two thousand crowds. I at know. The MCG it, in a so, row. so Potty's Caro sent me a text saying, "Would I like to go with her to the Melbourne um, uh, Collingwood, Collingwood game?" game which, which of was, course, I would have loved that. But I was um, in Port Ferry and um, caught a bit of it on the telly and thought. Bad career move, should have been there. How oh, exciting. You would have loved the it. The crowd roaring. Well, I ended up, um, my, I didn't even think about this, but my dear friend, our friend Sal Howe, big podcast fan, is a Collingwood fanatic. He was just back from overseas. So we had a great night together. Great. And, um, oh, look, both two nights in a row. The first night at the official dinner was John Stevens. He performed and, you know, did a, another farewell song. Jesus to, Christ Superstar? Or? Yes. Well, no, he, he actually, he, he did two songs and he said, I'm doing an encore because I know this is one of Gillen's favourites. You know, yet another yet another leg in the farewell tour, the world's longest farewell tour. He did Never Tear Us Apart. And then the next night, Marsha Hines shimmies out in spandex, looking unbelievable. I mean, she's over I, 70. I love Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. She was amazing. Gillen made... Gillen's speeches get looser and looser, poking fun at the Carlton chairman about PwC. Um, damning Brian Cook, I felt, the most respected, one of the most respected CEOs in the game with faint praise. A few gags, a lot of gags. A, a gag at Craig Hutchison's expense that went on for a while. A gag at Sam Pang's expense. Who he didn't pour it on. But anyway, no, two amazing games. And then, of course, the weekend was huge as well, Corey and... Um, we're still talking about the Braden Maynard hit on Angus Brayshaw, which has divided the footy world. 
and um, the caravan rolls on. But I'm more fascinated to hear about the Port Ferry Writers Festival, well, which I've never attended. It was really good. It's it's actually called Port Ferry Literary Weekend, and it uh, it's organised primarily by Joe, who owns the wonderful Blarney Books there, and. Anna and I jumped in her van. I actually was in Ballarat looking after the kids um, while their parents were away for an overnighter, both on work commitments. So I was up there doing the pickup, um, drop off at vocal gym, doing the bath and feed, doing all of that sort of stuff. Then went down to Geelong the next day, met Anna, jumped in her van, ditched my car, jumped in her van, and we did a road trip down to Port Ferry. And we have some wonderful friends down there. Big shout out to all of them. Thank you. Your hospitality was just wonderful, amazing, and you're all fabulous down there. Uh, revisited all Jock Sarong's tips, author Jock Sarong, who lives at Port Ferry. Remember, I went there a year or two ago and I had Jock's tips, where to get the best coffee and all that. Revisited all of that. Um, went to a couple of wonderful dress shops, boutiques, including the wonderful Golden Store, Caro. Oh, have, when was the last time you went to Port Ferry? Oh, I don't think I've been to Port Ferry for four years. Millie Grimshaw owns this shop. She opened it, I guess, about a year or maybe a year and a half ago. And fabulous clothing. Honestly, Port Ferry is such a great place for a weekend. You can have a great meal at somewhere like Conlon's Wine Bar or the Merry Jig or Coffin Sally for a pizza. And you can end up at the Port Ferry Literary Weekend Festival, which is what we did. So it, they took over the local cinema, which is the Reardon Theatre, and Joe from Blarney Books invited um, a wonderful who's who of mainly Victorian writers. And it was just great. It's a community. It's a small, tight, but really engaged community. I thought the crowds were terrific. Uh, I don't know what Jo's expecting, you know, what what her expectations were, but I think it was a huge success and well done to them. We were in the middle of the world's biggest storm on Friday morning. I had a blow wave booked at the local Port Ferry hair salon and the weather was sideways, the trees were sideways, the wind was sideways, everything was blowing and I said to Anna, I'm off to the hairdressers. (laughs) I had my beanie on. I was blown along the Moyne River, I think, riverfront, almost blew into the river. And um, at some point the power went out. There were trees, there were branches. I realised that I was probably dicing with death walking along the main street with and all these And dare I say, a bit of a waste of a blow wave heading well, out again. Well, I was kind of thinking that. At least I could put my newly coiffed hair into my beanie. And I literally blew into the nearest coffee shop and no lights are on, nothing. And they said, oh, there's a blackout. And I said, oh, can I still have a coffee? And they looked at me like, are you an idiot? <laughs> oh, sorry. I was so what cold. What part of blackout did you not hear, lady? I was so cold at the football on Friday night that they, and they, everyone, they were giving out blankets at the AFL official Franken in the Olympic room and they ran out. They were oh. Hun- and I had thermals on. I had a coat, you know, tights, boots. What a thing, freezing. It was so cold. So then I, I left the coffee shop with no coffee, blew up the road up to the hair salon, stuck my head in just in case. Look, I thought maybe they might have a generator. She looked at me like, you're an idiot. We've cancelled. It's not coming on until 4.30. So oh. slunk home only to receive a call half an hour later. Oh, the power's back on. You can come back. And at that stage, you're thinking, oh, it's such an awful day. I'm likely to get wet hair anyway. But the moment look, was lost. <laughs> the moment was lost. But look, we had a fantastic time. And again, there is nothing quite like just jumping in the car and visiting regional Victoria. I know we talk about that a lot. 
Jane and I certainly live in rural Victoria, um, and you almost do, Caro. We all have our favourite spots around Victoria. So just jump on to visitvictoria.com.au. I think that's the website, actually. Maybe it's org. Anyway, just go and have a look at the different things that are happening around Victoria, like the Port Ferry Literary Weekend, and um, make it your go-to over spring. That would be my tip. Although watch the pollens. Oh, the wattles and my nose. Do you get hay fever? Occasionally, yeah, no, probably not all that much. That sounds absolutely wonderful, Corrie. It was great. So tell us a bit more about the Gillen Farewell Tour, Caro. It's just going on and on. Oh, no, well, there's not much more to tell, really. Um, it, it's just, you know, the finals are a, a big occasion where Gillen McLaughlin gets up and speaks at most of the functions and, as I said, pokes fun at everyone. Um, there will be a big sort of farewell for him in the last week um, of the season, just after the Brownlow um, my and I've, I made this point um, on um, Footy Classified the other night, and and I've suggested it on Offside. As I think a great leg of that final tour would be for him to join Michael Long on the last day of his long walk to Canberra. So Michael Long first did the long walk 19 years ago, and he did it at the time when the AFL was trying to get money out of the Howard government, and. Um, Michael Long, I think, was protesting against the the um, termination of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders Commission in Canberra. So this time he's walking in support of the um, Indigenous Voice to Parliament. And, you know, the AFL having pressured all the clubs to get on board with the voice is, you know, running away at a million miles an hour from it at the moment. And that some clubs have joined Michael Long. David Barham, the Essendon chairman, did last week, I think, Richmond Simon Matthews will join him later on this week. Brendan Gale's looking at doing it as well. And Michael Long wants Gillan McLaughlin and Andrew Dillon to join him on that last day where Anthony Albanese and others will be joining him as he arrives on the steps of Parliament Thursday morning. I'm not sure that Gillan McLaughlin will or won't do that, but I think he should. I think that'd be a grand gesture. And it's not, you know, it's not interfering with their footy finals themselves. And I can understand why they don't want to take any sort of stand on grand final day. But I think something like that would be a good part mm. of the farewell tour. And there are only, it is, you know, you're at these functions and it's great. And Gillen's a charismatic character who's obviously, you know, had so many pluses as he goes out and done so many brilliant things, but it has been too long. And you're looking at Andrew Dillon sitting at the second table and thinking, well, really, it should be Andrew Dillon running these events. But anyway, he's and, not, but he will be soon. And, Caro, what do you think uh, Gillan McLaughlin might do after football? Yeah, I'd, it's a million-dollar question. Oh, I, everybody's asking. No one knows. Everyone's asking. No, well, no, I, I don't know if everyone's asking, but I don't think there's anything on the cards at the moment unless there's going to be a big surprise. Uh, originally, things like a job in the media, um, a job running one of the big networks. Um, Crown was mentioned some years ago. Because he's still quite young, so we can't see him drifting off to just being chair chair of suitable no. boards. He'd be an active CEO of some kind, you would have thought. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, people mentioned the Olympics last year. I mean, I don't think there's any way. He'd, I think that would be a bit of a demotion for Gillen. I think the point is, this is the biggest ticket in town in terms of sport. And it's one of the biggest, it's certainly one of the most high profile CEO roles in the country. And all CEOs, once they've finished... 
have really, I think, sort of struggled in a sense with life after footy. I mean, Ross Oakley went on a few boards that were fairly disastrous, you know, not blaming Ross Oakley, but, you know, obviously it reflected poorly on him. Harris Scarf was one of them. And then, of course, at a time they were troubled. Andrew Demetriou with the Acquire Learning and Crown and, you know, there was, it's just funny how it's been, Wayne Jackson um, went back to South Australia and, you know, did a few things, but became very low profile. So it, it'll be interesting. I mean, maybe one day he'll want a spot on the commission. Who knows? Mm, who knows? Um, Miss Jane is hovering at the door with the cocktail cabinet. So let's just wheel in that trolley. And here comes the cocktail cabinet. Jane's at the fore and Miles is right behind with a couple of bottles of white wine we have this week. The cocktail cabinet, of course, brought to us each week by Prince Wine Store. Miles Thompson, you were unwell last week. In fact, I'm in a studio full of sickies, coughing sickies here. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's done the round at work. Well, just don't do the rounds here, but it's lovely to see I'll you. Keep your distance over there. Thanks very much. And um, and Caro has a very croaky throat. She hasn't been 100% either, so I hope you both get better very soon. But um, today we're doing On the Nose Chapter 2, Fragrant <laughs> Wines and also Little Half Bottles We Love. And, Miles, you've brought in a white wine and Caro and I are going to have a drink. You've got a cold, Caro. You might not be able to sniff and I'm at the sniff end of my tell. cold. I'm at the end of it, as I told you. I was very sick last week. I'm on the mend. Sniff and tell. Um, okay, so <laughs> here we go. So what are we drinking this morning? So Sean Smith, M3 Chardonnay. So what did we do last time? Pinot. So two classics. Yeah, this is a real classic. Another this is, and it has Adelaide, been for... South Australia. Yeah, Adelaide Hills. Um, uh, yeah, they've... They're such a great winery. Really, everything they do is is pretty awesome. They have a really few little side projects and things going on. They'd also come in a few come in half bottles there, but they've always had actually the Sean Smith Ranges. Most of it has always been in half bottle too, which has always been great. So these have been a real sort of standard on the shelf for us. Sean Smith, usually the Shiraz, usually the Chardonnay, um, sometimes the Pinot as well. Um, I actually don't know if they do the Sauvignon Blanc in a half bottle, but we normally have the the Chardonnay and the Shiraz, which I think that they're two sort of flagship. Wines. So, first, before, well, tell us what it costs first to buy a half bottle. I'm interested in this. So, that one's 35. Which so, is up there for a half bottle. Yeah, but it you is. Think but that, and certainly, that, that wine is kind of getting lots of accolades the last few years in particular. Um, and it's in that sort of really what I would call that sort of modern Australian sort of style. It's um, it's a lighter colour than a normal Chardonnay, I would have thought. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't see maybe. As much sort of wood, um, may, that's often so. Color and wine can come from a few different things. It can come from sugar content. It can come from uh, oak. Normally, colors a wine, and also usually age. That's sort of what you see when you see more darker sort of amber colors in a wine. And what year is this? And this is twenty twenty one. I think this won a bunch of bunch of really big accolades, but it does every year. It's really fantastic. If you're really into that sort of modern Australian sort of style that, you know, what we call, talk about these sort of like acid-driven wines, you know, it's more about freshness and less about having a big whack of oak on it and if you can, um, trouble smelling as well. But yeah, Miss Jane's already had a swig, nice, I noticed, without naming well, names. I don't there is like some nice oak on there, but it's... On the odour, I, I don't know whether this is because I had the, one The yesterday. aroma. Well, the ro- aroma, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Did you say odour? Yeah, aroma. <laughs> 
I had um, to correct, sorry. Yeah, no, fair enough. Oh, no, j- jump in by all means. I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, join the queue. Oh, yes, right. Just join. Just stand behind Rishi. What do you smell, um, Corrie? Well, I, I had a, I had a, um, I had a grapefruit yesterday mm. for a beautiful grapefruit for breakfast, and I can actually smell grapefruit. Hundred percent. Is that right? Yeah, Is that it's, right. It's definitely in that real sort of See, like. I'm not such a bozo after all. No, that kind of citrus. <laughs> no, no one ever said you were a citrus bozo. peel and and yeah, that kind of grapefruit. Not that kind of man, you know. You kind of think mandarins like quite sort of ripe and tropical. This is kind of more cooler. Yeah, like cooler sort of elements. Um, okay, to so it. now I'm going to have a taste, Carol. What no do you spicy smell? kind of oh, oak. Well, only because mm. mine are all coming out at the moment and and are looking absolutely beautiful. I actually smelt kumquat. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm sure. And Mum's just actually whipped up a very big batch of her famous kumquat marmalade, and mm. that's what I'm thinking. But I think now Corrie has said grapefruit. I go, yep. Yeah, that's probably yeah, I mean, I think it accurate. has all those kind of... And the taste is quite tangy and citrusy, isn't Yeah, so it? again, that you look at this a bit more of a sort of acidity and freshness in a lot of the modern Australian Chardonnays. It's a beautiful wine. It's really lovely. It's beautifully yep. put together. There's oak in it, but it's really well done. Lovely kind of like spicy kind of, uh, that spicy kind of like oak that you sort of see, really like kind of quality, but it's not like overdone in that wine. You know, it's really sort of... A background sort of element. I've given. Yeah, I think that. a really beautiful example. I mean, Adam Wanowitz is the is the winemaker there, and he's just the the man can make wine. He's um, very, Janie, very what good. do you think about this? I had a little grassy hit when I first. I think so. Smelt it. Definitely. But it's got a, a herbaceous. Wine. It's got like a herbaceous mm. kind of element. But I hate Chard- Like honestly, I would never ever order a Chardonnay at but a restaurant. But would you drink that? I would drink that because yeah. it does not have that really kick in the guts totally. oakiness that I just do not like. Yeah. Maybe it's you know flashbacks from very early eighties. So no, hundred percent. And this even this wine, the M three. If you looked at it sort of ten fifteen years ago, it was a different wine. It was a little bit more full and voluptuous and had that sort of big, rich kind of oaky thing going on. They've definitely changed the style, but in, you know, in my personal opinion for the better, it's always been very good still regardless, but I think what they're doing now, and really we sort of talk about it a lot at work, Australian Chardonnay at the moment is just on fire. There's so much good Australian Chardonnay. It's like, be interesting to see what impact the, the forthcoming drought has on all of this too. That'll be really yeah. interesting. So well, this, is the, this is the lots half the half bottle M3 Shaw and so, Smith Chardonnay yep. 2021, and yep. you said it was $35 a bottle. $35 a And what's its grown-up full-bottle sister worth? Uh, yeah, it's probably sort of in the sort of 80 range now these days. It was probably one of those wines that, you know, just a few years ago was sort of like in the sort of 60-ish, but it's really sort of popped up. So, but, I mean, I think for – the amount that you, the quality that you get for for what you're paying here, it's and it's a really fantastic example of what Australia is doing at the moment. It's too. wonderful, and and in it's that great ha- wine. that taste and that half bottle, uh, Caro actually mentioned last week picnics. It is the perfect totally. picnic pair, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, and it's 21 too, so it's even got you know I think that the the current release is 22, so you've got you know a little bit of year and bottle to sort of settle down. And half bottles will go a bit quicker; they'll age a little quicker. Can so. you sell it? Yeah, you can definitely sell it. So that's what I was about to say. Yeah, half bottles tend to 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 uh-huh. to age quicker. Um, it's the kind of like the, it's like the wine to sort of air ratio and that sort of thing. So they tend to turn around a bit quicker. So magnums will go. So the bigger the format, the slower it'll age, and the smaller the format, the the quicker it'll age. So you could definitely, for sure, sell them if you wanted to. No problem. 
Is there any other wine you're going to tell us about today, Miles? Yeah, the, the other one I thought might be nice since we're coming into summer uh, is the Reverdy Sancerre. So I didn't bring it in with me today, but it's uh, I think it's the same 32, I think it is. And it's, uh, so if you like, so Sauvignon Blanc, but it's obviously from the sort of home of Sauvignon Blanc, which is Sancerre in uh, France. And that is, that is too, I guess, in, in the same regards as this, you know, Sancerre, rather than Sauvignon Blanc that you often see here in Australia, particularly sort of New Zealand, is less of that tropical fruit. Sancerre's got that really lovely grassy sort of mineral element to it, much more sort of tightly focused. And this Reverdy is kind of a nice combo of, of, of that with some nice sort of fruit to it. So you sort of see some of these Sancerre's coming out being a little bit more modern, quote unquote. You know, they've got a little bit more sort of plush fruit that's... So- uh, the Revity is the is the so is wine, the producer the winemaker. Correct. I hear the and word sonsere, and I just think fabulous wine. I think the first yeah, time absolutely. my mother visited me in London in the early eighties, and we went to we were travelling we were travelling to Cornwall, and on the way we stopped off at this gorgeous little place in Somerset, and I remember we were at a village, some village hotel, and she ordered a bottle of the sonsere, and I just remember thinking it was the most beautiful wine mm. I'd ever tasted. Yeah. The setting and probably had something to do with it. It probably <laughs> did. It probably did. But And I remember her saying, oh, this is Sancerre's, one of my favourite wines. And yeah. I have always loved it ever since. It's it's really fantastic. I, I don't drink a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, but I happily drink Sancerre. So that yeah. half bottle is $32, I think it's said? about 32 yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll so, double check. So that's the uh, the Reverdy Sancerre, which is a Sauvignon Blanc, $32 half bottle, and the Adelaide Hills M3 Shaw & Smith Chardonnay, 2021 is the year of that one, and that's yep, 35. 35. And how will potties find this incredible deal that well, you're about to tell just them? Just jump onto the website. Uh, Princewinestore.com.au, of course, with all the bits, WW, all the, all the rest. Uh, and you put in the code MEWS at the checkout, and you'll get 10% off oh, for anything in your car. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Miles, thank you for coming in as oh, ever. Thank you. Are we going to see you at Crown next Tuesday? I think so. Wonderful. Wonderful. Should be fun. Yeah, well, you're always a very popular attraction. So Miles will be with us at Crown at the Metropole Precinct next to Forever New, and we'll be there from 9am, just to remind everyone, next Tuesday, which is the 19th of September. Thanks, Miles. See you then. And now we have BSF Book, Screen and Food, brought to us as it is each week by Red Energy. And, of course, the food component Hello to Mr. Cobram, Cobram Estate, our new and much-valued cooking partners, Caro. Now, the book, I'll kick it off. It's Enbury Heath by Stella Gibbons. Now, of course, you will Never know. Never heard of this. Mm, Never heard know. of it. Well, Stella Gibbons, uh, was, is, is, um, she was a 20th century author. She was born in 1902. She died in the 1990s. She was born in the same year as the Queen Mother, so her life actually pretty much tracks almost to the year the Queen Mother's. But she became a um, she originally started writing newspaper articles and became a journalist. But in the 1930s and 40s, she started writing poetry and then novels. And this book, Enbury Heath, written in 1935, is one of those many novels. The reason I brought it up today, Caro, is at the moment I'm judging a non-fiction book award. And I'm up to my ears in nonfiction. And I thought, well, rather than talk about one of those, I would revisit a book that I really enjoyed a year or so ago. But I particularly enjoyed uh, one of Stella's other books. And it gives me a lovely excuse to talk about Cold Comfort Farm. 
which was written in 1932, which many people will know, of course, the story of Flora Post and the rather difficult uh, relatives in the country she takes on and um, decides to whip them into shape. But Enbury Heath is, is a, I would suggest, an autobiographical fiction, a work of fiction, because it's very much based on Stella's own life. Siblings Sophia and her younger brothers Harry and Francis have both lost their parents in within six months of one another. And indeed, Enbury Heath opens, Enbury Heath, which is a, a place uh, in North London, um, is, uh, the, the, the story opens and their father has just died, uh, a much-loved doctor, but a rather tough and difficult father. And that comes out as the book unfolds. Harry, uh, Harry Francis and Sophia are moderately grieving, which makes you wonder what happened with, with that relationship. It turns out that they adored their beloved mother who died a few months earlier. And for Sophia, the oldest daughter, her biggest concern is, what are we going to do? Because Francis is still at school. Harry wants to be an actor. There's no money coming in. What are they going to do? And can she actually guide these two boys toward adulthood? And where on earth are they going to live? There are some peculiar aunts and uncles who play bit parts, and they're rather terrific in this novel, uh, who are somewhat disapproving of Sophia's decision to actually just um, live in a little house on Enbury Heath, which a friend says, look, it's my mother's, she never uses it, you can borrow it. And what happens in this, Hampst- this, this cottage on Hampstead Heath or Enbury Heath, um, which is a part of Hampstead Heath, is this wonderful kind of bohemian, interesting world evolves. Francis coming home from boarding school on weekends, Harry the actor with all his actor friends, Sophia who's trying very hard to lead um, a proper life as I think she's a secretary from memory, but in fact she's she wants to be a poet um, and she she sees the whole world in a, in a lovely kind of literary way. It's a beautiful book and it's actually based on Stella Gibbons's own life. Because in 1926, Gibbons's mother, Maud, died suddenly at the age of 48, and their father died a few months later, heart disease aggravated by heavy drinking. So, of course, Stella Gibbons became the family's principal breadwinner. She went on, as I said, to become a journalist um, and write poetry. And then she sort of – she's interesting, Cara, because she settled into a set of knowing all of the people. She worked for a literary magazine edited by T.S. Eliot – um, she had lots of friends throughout her life, um, different um, older Bloomsbury folk, evil and war. And in fact, in later life, she became quite friendly with, with our Barry Humphreys uh, and a couple of, of his mobs. So really interesting story. But I do, when I had the bookshop, I used to recommend uh, with with huge enthusiasm to parents or indeed young women, particularly young girls who would come in or the parents would come in and say, I don't know what to, my daughter's 13 or 14 and she's making that transition into adult literature. What should we be reading? And Cold Comfort Farm and the story of Flora Post was always one of those, you must read this book. And, you know, if the, if the, if the reader, if the young reader was into that kind of old English life like you and I love and those sorts of stories. It was the perfect tick. So Stella Gibbons, Enbury Heath and also Cold Comfort Farm are on the list today. Wow. Okay. Well, I've never heard of it. I've obviously heard of Cold Comfort Farm. So that is a great recommendation. On to screen, well, the we newsreader. Both, yeah, we both tuned in. Well, I know I did. I and did. I'm sure you did. Mm-hmm. We've been dying for the second series of the newsreader. 
um, declare an interest. Our great Scrabble friend Marg Downey is a key part in this. And I feel after watching the first episode, she's going to play an even more, an even bigger role. It, there's a, a touch of the Lady Macbeth about Marg's role. Very much so. She's absolutely brilliant. In she, the first episode. She's really brilliant. So her character, Evelyn, for those who haven't seen it, her husband, Jeff, has been the big uh, the big charismatic, big star newsreader for this particular network. And in series one of the newsreader, he is dumped. And so the, 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 the different um, episodes in series one relate to the demise of Jeff, the, the Network getting behind Helen, who's the co-anchor, and who's going to be who's going to be Helen's partner on screen partner, and read the news with her. So that's how that kind of unfolds. Evelyn, played by Marg Downey, is really she. Marg gives a great performance as a woman who of that of that era who was obviously and is highly ambitious herself, but she has no role. She's a power behind the throne, but in episode one... Dysfunctional relationship with her daughter. Yeah. This show is brilliant at being funny while dramatic, but having a really dark edge to it. And um, the relationship between Marg, you know, who is Evelyn Walters and her daughter, is just, it's actually really sad. And um, Jeff, of course, has gone on to a new job and it's election night. And the drama, the the background to all backdrop is um, the two networks vying against each other on election night. And a- Anna Torv is absolutely brilliant, I reckon, as Helen. And Sam Reid, who plays Dale Jennings, her partner on screen and her partner in real life. Um, is he gay or is he not gay? He's obviously had gay experiences growing up and they've obviously discussed this. And that sort of complex part of their relationship airs again very early in series two. I just love the way this show takes real life events. Um, last time it was events such as the Chernobyl, Chernobyl disaster. and in, America's car. And, and this one, it's the, it's the 1987 election. And um, remember the tally room? <laughs> remember when nobody had computers? Remember oh, when Anthony Green had to rely on people in the poll, in the actual polls in the suburbs, in the polling booths in the suburbs to call him in with the details. This is a fantastic reminder of what that, what life was like. And also it just captures so brilliantly, I think, that, that stress that we've all, those of us who've worked in the media, we have all experienced at some time when you're on deadline and you're about to go live or your newspaper is about to be printed or whatever the drama is and everybody's just in 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 a in a just a state of complete frenetic panic panic it's no it's very it's it, just it, it captures it really well and things go horribly wrong for our news readers on election night but then Look, thing, it, it's just, it, it's a great sequence of event. William McGuinness is back as the very blustery oh, um, Lindsay, boss of Lindsay, the, the, um, the news of, director. And, and almost over the top, I think, but fascinating. Carol, can I also say that um, the ABC has produced uh, a new podcast? It's called the News Reader Podcast with Lee Sales and Lisa Miller. And I listened to it this morning. It's a ripper of a podcast, and they interview in particular um, so interesting. Um, they listened. They they interviewed Michael Lucas, who is the writer of the series. Fascinating, and they also interview Emma Freeman, who is the director, 
not Emma Friedman, who we sometimes see at the Melbourne Cup Carnival on the television, <laughs> but um, Emma Freeman, Freeman, and she talks about in particular how she photographed or how they worked out that frenetic um, election night, uh, you know, how they actually filmed it and the takes that they did and the set that they used and how how difficult it is to bring across to an audience that um, energy. But I think they did it very successfully. Great show, The Newsreader, ABC Sunday Nights, or you can watch it on iView. Carol, you have a recipe. Yes, our Sunday nights are set. I do, I do. And thank you again to Cobram Estate, um, one of Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria. Now, Corrie, I caught up with my friend, my mum and I's great friend Jan Richmond on Sunday for a variety of reasons. Mum and Jan are being interviewed um, for a new book, which is going to talk about the women of Richmond. That's another story. Jan served... She's a great cook, Jan, and she served her double cheese drop scones. They were delicious. The secret to these drop scones, they have double the amount of cheese <laughs> as normal scones. Oh, I knew there had to be a catch. They are simple. They are. They were so delicious. They are buttery. Tasty cheese? or and Yep. So very simple. Two cups of flour, three and a half teaspoons baking powder, half a teaspoon salt, 50 grams fridge cold butter, two rounded cups grated tasty cheese. Whoa. And one and a third cups of milk. You cook them in an oven, um, which is at 200. You basically combine all the dry ingredients, like all scones, and make a well in the middle where you pour in the milk. Um, mix in the cheese, of course, before you do the well with the milk. You mix it all with a knife until they're just combined. Don't overmix it. And there's no sort of um, cutters or anything like that, you literally just drop large spoonfuls of dough onto this baking tray and put them into the very hot oven. 15 minutes, they come out golden. Outside, they're all golden and crispy and cheesy, and inside, they're all soft and light. They are, you don't need are more they, butter with them, but guess what? We had it. Are they as tasty as our cheesy feet in Cornwall? Well, they're... Well, those cheesy feet were beautiful, but they were like biscuits. These they, are scones. They, can, they, crum- you remember they, mean, crum- they crumbled in our backpack. <laughs> and Jan actually, Jan, yeah, these wouldn't. Well, they might actually. Jan actually um, keeps them in the freezer and just brings them out and reheats them. And you, so you can do that as well. This this recipe makes eight to ten scones. Corrie, once you've had these, you will never have a different type of cheese scone ever again. Mm, the double cheese scone by Jan Richmond, whose husband was uh, is a former... Um, general manager or president? Well, he of... started out as secretary of the Richmond Football Club right, and, and um, ended, ended, ended up being vice president when dad was president and basically the power broker at Richmond for many years. A they great, used to say there was a trapdoor in his office, Caro. A great man, Graham you Richmond. Went, you went in and you never came out. This actually, this recipe comes from the Food Lovers um, website. I think it's called by Helen Jackson. But Miss Jane will put it on the show notes. They are absolutely delicious. That's BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Get Red Energy to fire up your cheesy scones. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? And, of course, a big shout-out to Cobram Estate. Uh, Wonderful product. Carol and I cook with it all the time. Maybe not in our cheesy scones, but almost just about in everything else. Carol, are you grumpy? Look, it's a bit hard to be grumpy about anything during this um, wonderful time of the year when spring is upon us, but it's impossible. I know we're going to talk about the weather just one more time. 
Corey, as I, the aforementioned visit to the footy in thermals and tights and coats, and I sit here with you today in spring linen and bare legs. What, how on earth do we plan ahead? This is a very social time for me and a very busy time for me work-wise. I'm, I'm, this is a time of year when you should be putting away your tights, when you should be putting away your coats into that separate cupboard if you have one, putting your jumpers away and mothballs. I'm, I'm in an absolute frenzy about have, what to wear every single three, day. I have three words for you. Shave your legs. Well, no, ma, that's all right. Look, my legs are fine. Oh, no, I don't mean now, but I just mean make sure just on those days when you can bear them that you're ready to rock and roll. It, it is just extraordinary how Melbourne is actually putting on. I mean, it's going to be 24 later this week and I've got to, I'll be looking at getting bathers out, Corrie, and yet last week two jumpers and a thermal top and a coat wasn't warm enough. How do we plan ahead? I do not know. It's a very, very difficult time. This is at the time I put away that second blanket on the bed. Mm. I get all the doonas washed and we can probably, you know, just sleep with a blanket or certainly just a doona and not the blanket, but I'm all over the place. I don't know about you. And the beanie is – I even wore a beanie at the footy the other night and you know it's not something I'm normally seen public in, <laughs> except when I'm with you. But you do look good in, good in a hat. I'm sure it was fun. I'm sure other people were in beanies. There must they have were. been a run for those rugs, though, at the MCC. Where a couple of commissioners got in ahead of me. <laughs> it was a bit disappointing. They weren't as warm as the MCC committee room rugs either, I will say that. Anyway, that's a life of privilege, going to the footy and getting a rug. But I did brave the external seats. I mean, there, a lot of people just stayed behind glass. Oh, that's half-time. good. Oh, you're, you're a brave soul. Did you have a little glass of red in your tumbler or No, well, I was driving, so I had one drink when I arrived and that was it, sadly. But there we are. Six quick questions, Caro. What journalistic dilemma did you face on the weekend? Writing a story that I've wanted to write for weeks, probably months, but haven't for fear of thinking that writing it might negate the result or overturn the result. You know, for years now, I've been saying that the AFL need a football person on the commission. And they haven't had one for nearly three seasons since Jason Ball stepped down. And Andrew, even before Jason Ball stepped down, I couldn't believe that Andrew Ireland wasn't being looked at as a commissioner, pioneer of football in Queensland and New South Wales, former Collingwood footballer, deputy chair of the Australian Sports Commission, still on the Swans board. You know, I started hearing months ago that finally the commission might be looking at getting Andrew Ireland on board. And for, on Friday, it was put to me by someone, you should really, it's going to happen. And I thought, if I write this story, a bit like um, writing about Brendan Gale about four years ago, mm. there, there is a... You a put the moz on it. I just was terrified of putting the moz on it. Because you really want him, you think he'll be good. And I just, I, I firmly believe... But you only, did write it because I read it. I did write it. And oh, I hope... Sorry, Andrew. I hope... <laughs> I really hope it that. doesn't change the result. Corrie, what podcast scared the bejesus out of you this weekend? Oh, Caro, this is a ripper of a podcast. It's called 7am and it's produced by Schwartz Media. And hats off to them. It's about, I don't know, 20 minutes each weekday morning. But they're at the Writers' Festival in Port Fury. One of the authors, Kate Mildenhall, mentioned this particular interview and I had not heard this podcast. So I went back on the weekend and listened and now I'm terrified. It was an interview done in July with Joel Jergis, G-E-R-G-I-S is her surname. And Joel is a, an, a brilliant, highly respected around the world climate scientist. She's Australian and she actually came to the Sorrento Writers' Festival because she had a new book out. 
And she was quoted as saying that the El Nino, which we are expecting, which has just started now here in Australia, which comes every two to seven years, uh, this year, this season, is going to be an absolute game changer. She in, in the podcast, Cara, she outlines many different parts of Australian life that will be possibly changed forever in terms of bushfire, drought, um, and, and sort of land management. Um, I mean, land management will go out the window. It's about survival this summer. But one part of it in particular, she talks about the Great Barrier Reef. And in the last El Nino, 50% of the Great Barrier Reef's shallow water corals were killed off which was catastrophic. And she now thinks that what we'll have this El Nino event coming through will be so bad that she fears that the reef might not survive. And that she, and she says in the podcast, it really pains me to say that I think we are bearing witness to the death of the Great Barrier Reef. And it's not something I ever thought I would witness in my lifetime. And it's actually really a hard thing to say out loud. There's a lot of emotion behind what she's saying and you listen to it. You can also read the transcript as well if you jump on to 7ampodcast.com.au, but it's absolutely terrifying. So that's not such a good happy news story for our podcast listeners, but I did want potties to know that um, it is really worth listening to that and, and having a think about El Nino. Um, Caro, what was your most embarrassing moment of the past week? Oh, the Corrie. hairy legs? No, I, I didn't have hairy legs. I mean, you've got this obsession. No, I never have. Because you mentioned your hairy legs on the podcast a year or two ago, and Jane and I were. You've held on to it ever since. We just couldn't stop well, it laughing. Did involve, it did involve <laughs> hair. So there I am at the Royal Hall of Industries in Sydney, just over the road from Centennial Park, next to the old Fox Studios, now Disney Studios, and home of the Sydney Swans, which is where. Channel 9 was having this amazing upfront thing that it, you did it in this massive hall in front of over a thousand people and then you, oh. and then you go back over to the Royal Hall of Industries. they gave you industry. a nice dress to wear, the, the wardrobe girls at Channel 9. Well, this is the, oh, this is the story. So okay. I had a beautiful Scanlon and Theodore dress that um, lovely Kate Hastelow from Nine Wardrobe had let me take up to Sydney. Colour? Emerald green. Mm, just your really, colour. Really lovely. And we'd looked at backdrops and everything. So... I'm in the middle of hair and makeup and they said there was a changing room. Like you can imagine all these people, you know, from Kate Landbrook to Hamish and Andy, like all these celebs running around and little, well, not so little old me. And I go over and put on the dress and they've done my hair, but they've done all the front bit up in rollers. So I look like, you know, Phyllis Diller, like my hair's up in rollers at the front and I've had my makeup done, but I go to put on the dress. Where's the sash? Now, it needs a sash because it's it's a be- it's like a it's this beautiful silk dress, but it's like a tent until you tie it up with the sash and it becomes a beautiful structured dress. No sash. What do I do? They ring Kate in Melbourne. She said it was in the bag, the the dress bag, and on the plane. Blah blah blah. I ring my brother. I was staying at his house in Sydney, and he lives not far away in Wallara. He said, "Oh, you've let it's dropped on the floor in your bedroom." I said. Could you please, 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 unless we get a belt from wardrobe. But it wasn't their normal wardrobe. How long, so how long before the, tea off time? Oh, well, it's probably an hour and a half. But anyway, he said, oh, I'll come now. I can, I can imagine Will's so, response. <laughs> so I run outside and I don't even think about the fact that I've got the dress on with no sash. Like it looks like a massive tent. My hair, like this roller thing, who do I walk straight smack bang into 
because I have to go out through this car park area, but one of the Sydney swans, Callum Mills, who's a very <laughs> star young player, and he looks at me and goes, hi, Callum. He goes, and he, I said, Caro, he goes, gee, the hair's, <laughs> the hair's interesting. <laughs> so he's just finished training. He's about to go home and fly down to Melbourne, I assume, to play in the final on Friday night against um, Carlton. I said, it's a long story, Callum. <laughs> At which point my brother pulls up in the car and flings his sash out towards me. He's off to the art fair. Honestly, I have you should have seen me. What did I look like? I can't went back in with the sash, put on my high shoes and it was got, all right. I hope you got the roller out of the it top was, of the head. Yeah, well they, the hair was subsequently fixed up. So embarrassing. Corrie, which local government announcement really irked you this week? This was in your paper, Caro. Pubs in the city of Yarra, which includes you know, Richmond and Abbotsford, that sort of area, have been told by health officers that there needs to they need to clarify the law on the subject of pubs in pups in pubs. So a number of these pubs you can take your dogs into the beer garden. Everybody's very aware, of course, dogs can't go in the food handling areas, but they are allowed into beer gardens and of course that's part of the charm of these inner city pubs. So the city of Yarra has said, we just want to reiterate, we're not clamping down on no pups at pubs, but we just want clarification. We want to make sure you're all obeying the rules. Dog owners reacted swiftly and within a couple of days, they had nearly 9,000 signatures (laughs) saying, hands off our pups. So I just wanted to say, please, Yarra Mayor Claudia Nune, please don't do anything that restricts puppy patronage in Melbourne's watering holes. That's what makes them so special. And in fact, Guy David, who's the owner of the Empress Hotel in Fitzroy, said his four-legged regulars were all quote-unquote pub trained and kept primarily to the beer garden. And Guy continued, lots of the ones we have here are generally locals who come and frequent this place five to seven days a week. I hope they're also being, being taken, taken for a walk. <laughs> Only to the beer garden. And then um, he added... They add a sense of community and a sense of family. From a health point of view, there's no way the dogs are getting close to the kitchen or any food prep areas. So uh, I just hands off our pups. That's a very, very interesting um, we'll thing. We'll follow that one. Very, very um, I, I can see why you're irked and I don't blame you, but I do think people who have their dogs at coffee shops and pubs, that they might be pub trained and coffee trained, some of them, but they're not all. No, not all of them are. It can but make life pretty un. un- Pleasant. But we have talked about this when we've travelled in different parts of Europe. Yes, it's how, completely how, different. How comfortable everybody is carrying their dogs in in a little basket sometimes. Caro, what electric media feat did you finally master over the past week? I think that should read electronic media feat. Sorry, um, that was that's um, why I paused. I could I, I have not written this down properly. My apologies. I read from an auto cue for the first time. I oh. have never read from an auto cue. I might have once years and years and years ago um, on a show I did briefly for the ABC. Oh, do you just do Caro's arrow off the top of your head? Yes, and oh, you can tell very, sometimes. <laughs> I'm very impressed. And years ago, Gary Lyon said, you should do this off an auto cue. And I thought, oh, I couldn't. auto cues terrify me, terrify me. Well, we had to do it for these aforementioned upfronts and you're up on stage in front of a thousand people and there's two screens to the left and right and one in the middle and we did do rehearsals. It was great. Reading from an auto cue was great. I didn't have to memorise my lines. It was... um, Welcome to 1967. It was fabulous and I managed to do it after a couple of rehearsals in a... Auto cues are great. So anyway... 
the things you learn. Next you'll be able to download a podcast. Oh. <laughs> Corrie, what is this week's amazing fact? The Royal Melbourne Show. It starts next Thursday, Caro, Thursday the 21st of September, and it runs till Sunday the 1st of October. And did you know that in 2023, the Royal Melbourne Show, although it's changed its name, not that anybody calls it Melbourne Royal, but that apparently that's what it's, we're supposed to call it, it's celebrating its 175th birthday. It was first formed in 1848 by a group of farmers who were then known as the Mooney Ponds Farmers Society, and they had ploughing matches up and down the paddocks, I guess, of Mooney Ponds, and they had winners and things. Uh, next week, the Governor-General, His Excellency, oh, now 10 points if you can name the Governor-General. No. <laughs> David Hurley. That's it. Will officially open the show at 11.30am on the Horses in Action Arena, if anybody's interested in going to watch that. Um the show is organised each year. It takes place, of course, at, in Ascot Vale at the showgrounds and um, it attracts each year up to half a million people. The show is a way of bringing country Victoria to Melbourne, livestock and produce displays, competitions, best in show for your marmalade or your fat pig, um, industry stands, amusement rides and, of course, the show bags. There are 16 pavilions. Caro, there was no Royal Melbourne show in, from, in the years 1915 to 1918. And 1940 to 45, these were war years and the showgrounds were requisitioned for military use in both those wars. And then in 2020 and 2021, why do you think they were cancelled? Because there was a pandemic. Ten points there. The major, um, the major rural competitions include alpaca, best alpaca, beef cattle. Did you know there is a beef carcass competition? I didn't, but what I did read this year was there was a move to take the show back to its agricultural roots well, and I they jacked up on all the, you know, commercial sweetie bags and the rides, et cetera. Too much of that and not enough, you know, cows. And not enough cows and not enough woodchop. Woodchop competitions are big. Remember the O'Tools? Oh, yep. dominated every year. I do. The, the major equestrian competition of Australia is held at the Royal Melbourne Show and it's the Gary Owen Equestrian Turnout. And, of course, this is the memorial trophy to Mrs Violet Murrell's bravery as she attempted to save her horse Gary Owen from a fire. And the competition is for horsewomen and it's judged on mount, costume, saddlery, riding ability and general appearances. Um, what else do we know about the show? Long gone from the show, Caro, the Mad Mouse roller coaster, which I was too petrified as a child to um, go on. They had a couple of accidents and it was closed down in 2005. Although, interestingly, it is now a, uh, a, a piece of um, architecture, I guess, in uh, Indonesia. My brother went that. on the Mad Mouse and it, yeah, never, it took it was never a lot of years off our lives. <laughs> showbags this year. A record number of showbags are on offer this year. Some of the favourites are back, like the Hoadleys and so on, but we also have some new ones. Bluey, Barbie, the Matilda's bag set, and um, they, the Whiz Fizz um, is back. And, My brother's um, favourite. The Bertie Beetle, as I said. And prices start at about $4 for your Whiz Fizz, the little Whiz Fizz show bag, and they can go up to $30 or $35 for the Matilda bag set and the others. So if you want, I would suggest you book a ticket if you want to, because there are some really good packages, everybody. Uh, I just jumped onto royalshow.com.au and they have some good ticketing options. So if you've got a family of four or six or something, it might be the less expensive way to do it. Sounds great. There you go. Really See you on the Ferris wheel. I love the Royal Melbourne show. And I just hope the Don Smallgood's 
show bag is still available because <laughs> that was the one I always I, wanted. You've, you've said that before on the podcast. I, I can't believe that you're a kid that got off on a little banana, a, a cabana stick. And I've, I've also um, spoken about my experience in the haunted house when I had to close it down to get me out. But we won't go down that road again. Um, well, it's been lovely seeing you and you've got another busy week of footy finals ahead and I look forward to our chat next week. And Potties, we look forward to seeing you again. Don't forget we have the live podcast next Tuesday, the 19th of September at 9am. You are all welcome, free event. Uh, just look on the show notes and you can join us with Deborah Conway. And Thursday, the 16th of November, the live podcast at Red Energy in Richmond, their head office. And I believe they have an indoor slide. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I can't wait to have a go. Tickets will be on sale for that soon via our show notes. Don't forget our little sister bonus episode, Dear Carol and Corey. If you have any social dilemma or any concerns or anything you'd like to share with us, wear your agony aunts. Just write in to us. And Carol, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. We love hearing from you, so join us on Facebook or Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod or email us via feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do it is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are just so greatly appreciated. And of course, you can support our wonderful sponsors who make the podcast possible. Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers three times. Maybe it's time you switch to red. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au.